Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. You're listening to WNYC's podcast, featuring the best 2018 midterms coverage from our talk shows and our award-winning local newsroom. Keep in mind, some segments may be edited for length. You can find the full shows on your favorite podcast app. In the wake of the appointment of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, the lone swing voice on the court, Justice Kennedy, deciding to retire, and the current ongoing hearings for Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, many are concerned that the Supreme Court is shifting dramatically to the right, and quite quickly. Questions abound around how politics are playing out in Supreme Court nominations, but there is also a larger question at stake here about who the Supreme Court is meant to represent. New York Times staff writer Emily Bazelon has written an essay in a recent edition of the New York Times magazine titled The GOP Plan to Rule the Courts, in which she asks if the Supreme Court justices should reflect the majority or, quote, protect minorities from tyranny by the majority. Basildon also offers historical context for how the Supreme Court was intended to function and what happens when the courts and the will of the electorate diverge. I'm so pleased that Emily Basildon is able to join us today. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Well, this has been quite an exciting morning of of breaking news with regard to the Supreme Court hearings that are going on right now. Um, This morning, the Times published the contents of a leaked email from 2003 that was provided to the paper by an anonymous source. And in, in that email, Brett Kavanaugh says, and this is a quote, I am not sure that all legal scholars refer to Roe as the settled law of the land at the Supreme Court level, since court can always overrule its precedent, and three current justices on the court would do so. So, starting with his views on Roe, these published views on Roe that were just leaked, uh, can you break down the significance of this and um, maybe then after that talk about the email that Cory Booker released about his views on racial profiling, Neil Kavanaugh's that is? Yeah, sure. So... You know, we know from Kavanaugh's record as a judge that he is um, at the very least not interested in um, granting the right to an abortion to a 17-year-old immigrant who was um, being looked after by the federal government. She had asked for an abortion. That's her constitutional right. Um, The Trump administration tried to block her. And Kavanaugh dissented from his colleagues, he would have required a longer waiting period from a girl who already was um, weeks into her pregnancy. So, you know, in some ways, we already know quite a lot about Kavanaugh's stance on abortion. But Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who are Republican senators with key votes, they have um, rested their support for Kavanaugh since they are pro-choice women. Um, They've rested their support for him on his assertion that Roe versus Wade is settled law. That's a pretty meaningless statement just from the get-go because some a, a case can be settled and then the Supreme Court can come along and unsettle it. And exactly. You get to be a justice. Right. You, you don't have to always respect precedent. There is no... Um, you know, set in stone guarantee. However, this memo from 2003 that Kavanaugh wrote in the Bush administration sort of further suggests that at the time he was skeptical even of calling Roe versus Wade settled. 
And I hope I'm not imputing too much to him, but there's really no reason to question the settled nature of Roe if you think that it should always be um, the law of the land. And so it's just, in my view, one more um, piece of evidence for a proposition that's already pretty clear, which is that um, Brett Kavanaugh is, uh, opposes abortion. Right. So do you think, Emily, do you, uh, judging by what you've heard, what you've read, break it down for us, would he try actually to reverse Roe v. Wade, do you think? I mean, I think that the only question with this five-member solid conservative Supreme Court we're about to have is what strategy they will pursue to um, undermine the constitutional right to an abortion. It's possible that they will outright overturn Roe, and it is also possible that they will find a way to kind of gut Roe and make the access to abortion meaningless for women who live in states that want to outlaw abortion. This Um, is really an important point because I think most people that think of Roe being struck down, they just think it's either law or not law, and they forget about the state's rights and how that can really kind of gut it in different ways. Yes, exactly. So if you just go back a couple of years, there was a law that passed in Texas that had a number of restrictions on abortion clinics. And the purported rationale for this law was like, oh, we're just making sure these clinics are safe places. But it was really a matter of clinics in the kind of meaningless from a health standpoint, the kind of red tape that would make it impossible and too expensive for them to operate. And so what would have happened from this law that was supposed to protect women's health and safety was in fact the closure of most of Texas's abortion clinics. Wow. That law was struck down by the Supreme Court. If the next law like it is allowed to stand, then we will have a wave of states um, in which Republicans are in control that will pass similar laws and clinics will shut down. Roe could remain on the books, but real women who are trying to get abortions in those states will have a much harder time. And, you know, always when we have these discussions, I think it's important to say that the women who will be primarily affected are low-income women, right? right? Women with means will be able to travel to places like New York where abortion will remain legal. But, you know, if you don't have the money to do that, it's going to be really hard. Now, here's what's interesting, because we're living in a, in a time where the polls are showing that 71% of people polled approve of Roe v. Wade, yet we potentially could have a court that's working in opposition to what the populace wants. How does that happen? Right. So this was this that interesting question is a great way into um, what I was trying to think through in this essay I wrote about. So on the one hand, you know, we have these three branches of government and the courts are independent and they're the judges are not elected and they're supposed to respond to every um, aspect of the will of the people, right? They're right. supposed to stand for some other legal principles and have some distance from the electorate. And yet, at the same time, the process of Supreme Court nominations, as we are seeing right now, is deeply political um, and has gotten much more political, I think, in the last generation or so. And the question is always sort of the play in the joints of the Constitution. On the one hand, judicial independence and a tradition sometimes of proudly not going along with the will of the majority, right? Um, Like Brown Brown versus versus the Board of of Education, Education, of course. Yes. And that's one of the court's most storied and important and venerated decisions. 
And yet, if you have a situation where the court goes in one direction, and this time it would be to the right, and the country goes in another direction, and this time demographically it looks like it would be to the left, then you're talking about some real friction and source of tension and kind of straining of our constitutional system, especially if that situation persists for a long time. So Roe is a flashpoint in this debate. And as you said, it happens right now that polls are at an all-time high in terms of support for the ruling. Um, So then if the Supreme Court were to overturn it or gut it, um, and yet these justices would then remain on the court for many years um, afterward, what would happen? That's like the one big question that um, I was trying to think through. That is frightening. Um, Now, are there other issues where you see public opinion and court rulings, what you described back in the days of uh, Brown versus the Board of Education? Are there other areas where that divide is is wide? Yeah, so we see that with Citizens United, which was the decision the court made in 2010 that opened this big faucet of spending um, on campaigns by corporations and unions and then opened, you know, not in itself, but there were other decisions that came after that created the whole world of super PACs and anonymous donations, all the kind of money influence we've seen in elections. That is a very unpopular um, road the court has gone down. And so again, you see a country that is very skeptical of this important move that the justices have made in that case in the name of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. So this has happened before and likely could happen again as well. Yes, exactly. And then the question becomes one about um, how much tolerance is there in the public for a court that seems to be doing things that the public really, really doesn't like. And one of the um, things I did researching this piece was to go back to some historical examples. The big one is the New Deal. There was a court, a Supreme Court, when um, Franklin Roosevelt became president that was very conservative and had for in fact, prevented things like a ban on child labor, other kinds of regulations that were supposed to protect workers. So FDR came along with this Democratic Congress and passed the key legislative components of the New Deal. And these conservative justices started striking down the New Deal. Then we have this moment of great tension where Roosevelt proposes adding to the number of justices on the court, what we think of as his court packing scheme. (laughs) And that's come down as a kind of, you know, sullied, um, disrespected way of handling the court and a a threat, judicial independence. But uh, what I reminded myself of, and I think is important to remember, was at the time, the public was with Roosevelt. And if the court had not backed down, because what happened was a couple of, one judge retired and another justice effectively switched his vote. Fascinating. If that hadn't, right? So if that hadn't happened, and the clash between the Supreme Court on the one hand and Congress on and and the people on the other had continued, maybe we would think that court packing was like the only way out and perfectly okay. We're going to get more into that and into the issue of swing judges, which are so important. I'm Nancy Giles. I'm speaking with New York Times staff writer Emily Bazelon about her latest piece in the New York Times magazine, The GOP Plan to Rule the Courts, and we'll be back after break. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen 
wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking with New York Times staff writer Emily Bazelon about her latest piece in the New York Times magazine, The GOP Plan to Rule the Courts. So, Emily, Kavanaugh said that during this hearing, this is a quote, no one is above the law in our constitutional system. And that was his way of assuring that he would be an independent judge who would go, you know, go against the president, maybe who nominated him. But the bigger question And the most, I think the pressing one is, is he going to be a swing judge? What do you think the likelihood is that he'll vote against the conservative line these days? And and can you also talk about the importance of those swing judges in history? Sure. I think the chances of Kavanaugh being a swing justice are close to zero. Um, Wow. He was pre-approved by the Federalist Society, which was created by the conservative legal movement to end the era of swing justices, right? I want to stop you right there. Can you give us a little more information on what the Federalist Society actually is? Yeah, for sure. So in the early 80s, some law students, some conservative law students who felt marginalized at um, some of the country's big law students got together to start an organization. And at first it was like kind of a social network, a place to meet other people who shared their views. Over time, it became a really powerful and influential organ for the intellectual development of conservative legal thought, both in law schools and then in the judiciary and in the legal profession. And so the Federalist Society became um, the place that Donald Trump turned to for putting together a list of conservative judges and potential Supreme Court nominees who would reassure the conservative base that he was with them. Um, he is the one who, you know, really outsourced these choices to the to the Federalist Society and, and gave it this key role in selecting judges in his, his administration. And Goodness he did gracious. that because he wanted to let conservative voters know, don't worry, I have your back on this. I get that you care about the judiciary. So he, this was his way of saying these are pre-approved people that will, you know, that will appeal to his base. When was the Federalist Society established? When did they start? They started in 1982, Um, so they've been around for a while. And, you know, during the 80s and 90s, there were some really frustrating times for conservatives who cared about the courts because, in particular, um, George H.W. Bush chose David Souter to be a Supreme Court justice. And from the point of view of conservatives, this is like a terrible failure because Justice Souter didn't just become a swing justice. He actually really drifted all the way to the left and behaved like a liberal on the court. Sacrilege. Yes. (laughs) Even though he was a Republican appointee. Mm -hmm. And so you can think about the Federalist Society and the efforts of the Trump administration in picking nominees like Kavanaugh and before him, Neil Gorsuch. All of it is to make sure that someone like David Souter is not chosen by a Republican president. I mean, their their feeling is the people that are pre-approved on that list, they're going to stay in those positions. They, they're not going to swing. They're going to stay conservative, hardcore exactly. conservative. Right. And Kavanaugh is an especially good bet to stay conservative. He is a D.C. insider who has worked for the federal government. Um, and there's an amazing law professor named Lee Epstein who does a lot of data-based research about the views and the votes and the behavioral of um, Supreme Court justices. 
And one of her findings is that if you're um, uh, eventually a Supreme Court justice, but along the way you worked for the federal government in a political job, you are especially unlikely to drift away from the ideology that brought you to the court. You know, you're a known quantity and you are deeply committed to the views that you hold. Oh, man. Despite that, who would you say are the swing justices that we have right now on the Supreme Court? There are no swing justices on the Supreme Court. I mean, the justice who will probably occupy the middle is Chief Justice John Roberts, but that does not make him a swing justice. He is a person who almost always votes with his conservative colleagues. The big exception is his vote to uphold Obamacare. Right. And so, right, and so some conservatives have said based on that vote, you can count on Roberts to be, um, to exercise restraint, to make sure that this court does not go seriously out of step with the public. But I don't think that Roberts' one vote in that one case um, makes their um, argument for them very powerfully. I can see what you're saying. How would how you relate swing judges and the Supreme Court being perceived, this is laughable almost, as above politics? Right. Well, it's, it's actually, I mean, it's interesting that you say laughable because, of course, for a long time we've cared a great deal about this perception of the court, and it goes to why we give unelected people any right to say what the law is, right? And, you know, one answer to that is that really since the 1950s, there have been justices who did not toe the party line. In other words, um, they did not vote on the court in the way that the president who picked them probably would have preferred. And there's actually a lot of these people. There's, I, in my count, there's 10 justices like this over the years since the 50s. That has really shaped our whole public perception of the court. Even in five to four decisions, for the most part, there were um, Republican and Democratic appointed judges, justices on both sides of the divide, reliably for a really long time. And that's the era that's really coming to an end here. It's not just that we're about to have five conservatives. We're also about to have five conservatives who were appointed by Republican presidents And they're about to face off between four, against four liberal, moderate justices, all appointed by Democrats. So, I mean, this is looking like a gun show. It's like high noon. There's there's just two sides and there's no no way around that. Um, Right. And if that divide is really pronounced and emphatic and um, affects the law on, you know, the big issues the public cares about, abortions and guns and affirmative action and corporate spending on elections and, um, you know, labor versus capital kinds of cases, then it's going to be increasingly difficult to see the court as being above politics and nonpartisan. And I think that's one of the deep fears that... um, you know, a lot of people in the legal academy, other observers have about the shift that we're seeing take place right in front of our eyes. I'm Nancy Giles. I'm speaking with New York Times staff writer Emily Bazelon about her latest piece in the Times magazine, the GOP plan to rule the courts. Emily, I always wondered, what was the hope behind making judges have lifetime appointments? That to me is kind of a frightening prospect right there. Right. So this is in the Constitution, the notion that judges stay, they have life tenure. And at the time, and this is, you have to take yourself back to a different historical period. So one thing is at the time, people, you know, just didn't have super long lifespans, right? So like the notion that someone... I'm sorry. Yes, right. Right? Like you wouldn't get (laughs) on the court and necessarily expect people to stay for 40 years um, because that just wasn't as much a part of the... um, 
the, you know, Rice? No, that's funny. Fly. That's true. Right. And the other thing that was really different than now is that becoming a Supreme Court justice was not a particularly honored role. Um, judges did this thing in the 18th century called riding circuit, where they literally had to get on a horse and ride around to the different circuit courts in different colonies and then and in the states, the new states, to decide cases. It was kind of hard. It, it was a lot of... Um, you know, just literally like having to get on your horse and go places. Um, it was a demanding job. And so the esteemed, rather cushy, extremely powerful way that we think of Supreme Court justices now, it wasn't there at the founding. And so I don't think the framers um, really thought through <laughs> what life tenure would end up meaning. Um, and, and the way in which, I'm, you know, I agree with you, I think that it can play a kind of destructive role at this point. Can I go back to something we talked about before, which is how the Supreme Court and the will of the people are completely drifting apart these days? Talk again about some of the issues where you see public opinion and the court's rulings diverge. Well, so the court over the last several years has issued a number of decisions that um, are in favor of corporate power over consumers and employees. One example is a line of cases that make it much easier for companies to create um, contracts that bind people to private individual arbitration if there's a dispute. So, for example, you know, you work for this company and when you get hired, you sign a contract. You don't read all the fine print. Plus, you think your things are going to go well. You're not expecting to sue that company. Exactly. But, right. But then you have problems. Like, imagine there is a sex discrimination claim or um, someone has, is um, stealing your wages. That's the, the case. The court had this term. Like, there's wage theft going on and you want to sue. It's hard to get a lawyer if you just have a small claim for your own you know, say they, like, took $1,000 from you. Right. Right? It's hard to get a lawyer all by yourself. But if you can band together with a lot of other workers who were similarly, similarly cheated out of their $1,000, well, then you have a lawsuit that's worth a lawyer taking. And those are what we call class action lawsuits. They've been a really powerful vehicle for employees and consumers to, to beat companies when companies are cheating them in some way or breaking the law. Absolutely. I mean, and, for, for to lose $1,000 can sometimes cost someone more than $1,000 to try to pursue the case. Exactly. So what a lot of companies have tried to do is prevent workers and the consumers from banding together in class action lawsuits. And they do that in the fine print of contracts that say to the employer or consumer, hey, you've agreed ahead of time that if we have any dispute, you're going to go to private binding arbitration. That means a closed door court. It's not like, you know, a public state employee judge. Yikes. It's like someone, right? It's like a hearing officer who's privately paid for. And you have to do it all by yourself. And so what, you know, inevitably happens if that's the only remedy is many, many fewer people pursue it. Um, and the companies are allowed to, you know, they have much more leeway to continue with whatever violations they're doing. So companies love binding arbitration. And the Supreme Court has really made it much easier for them to sign these kind of contracts. Well, speaking of uh, labor law, which is what we're just talking about, there was a, a famous ruling at the turn of the 20th century that sort of uh, echoes these recent rulings. Lochner versus New York. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, sure. So I was talking before about the court in the time of Franklin Roosevelt that was really conservative. And it's actually usually called the Lochner Court because of that decision. And what happened was that New York State, for health and welfare reasons, passed a measure limiting the workday for bakers to 10 hours. So the idea was that it wasn't good for people, you know, to be working more than 10 hours at a time. You think? Right. And this is the kind of regulation we have now with things like OSHA, right, where there are just certain um, kinds of work and uh, work safety requirements that companies have to have in place before they can employ people. So this, the constitutionality of this um, workplace regulation for bakers was called into question in court and the Supreme Court struck down the law. It was a a law with a lot of popular support. It had passed nearly unanimously in New York, and people liked this law. But the Supreme Court said, no, there is somewhere in the Constitution, uh, not written in the text, but in the minds of the justices, this principle of freedom of contract. And they saw the New York law as being... um, you know, contradicting that principle of freedom of contract. And so they said effectively that states can't pass health and safety regulations that protect workers. Hard to believe. Yes, it is hard to believe, but it was an era on the court that lasted for decades. And that's one of the things to remember about the Supreme Court. You know, Brett Kavanaugh will take the bench this month, unless something Maybe. goes drastically wrong. Not done yet. Not, Not a done, done deal yet. yet. Imagine, though, that his appointment goes through. He will be on the bench potentially for decades. And so President Trump will be long gone, but his choice will still be influencing the development of American law. There's so many things I could say right now, but I really value having this job, so I'm going to just try to stay neutral. Now, okay, we're talking about the Lochner Court, and, and they were a lot more conservative than than the new era that time. So in contrast, when you go to the 60s, was was that the Warren court? And were they pretty much more progressive than the populace? Yes. So you're right. You have a kind of flipping of the dynamic in the 60s where the Warren court, led by Chief Justice Earl Warren, he'd been the governor of California. He was actually picked by a Republican president, by Dwight D. Eisenhower. Correct. But on the court, he led a fairly liberal group. And so, you know, the big famous thing they did first, which we talked about a little bit, is Brown versus Board of Education, where they ordered schools to desegregate. That was in 1954. Um, that decision actually was fairly popular, but over the next 10 or 15 years, the court made other kind of bold moves, especially in the area of criminal justice, that were much less popular. So a lot of the basic rights of criminal defendants that we have in this country come from that era. And they, the court was issuing these decisions just as crime was really starting to rise in the United States, and there was a lot of fear of crime. And so what happened to the Warren court was it became a kind of political punching bag in the late 60s when Richard Nixon ran for president. He really used the court as like a line in his speeches to say, you know, they're those justices, they're letting murderers run free. Oh, right. He referred to a cab driver that had been murdered and said something about the, it's the court's fault. Exactly. Yeah. And so what you see there is a conservative backlash against the Supreme Court, um, which, you know, for the institution was costly. And it also so did affect the um, trajectory of American politics at the time. Can we bounce back to these recent, the emails that have just been released by, I think Cory Booker uh, released some emails that were supposed to be uh, confidential about um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh's views on racial profiling. Uh, what, what have you learned about that? And is well, that I'm another just... area where he may be saying one thing on the record and actually saying other things in print? 
Right. Well, so these are documents that go back to um, Kavanaugh's earlier record and that the Supreme, the, I'm sorry, that the Trump administration had claimed executive privilege about saying that, you know, we can't release them because they related to Kavanaugh's work when he was um, a staffer for George W. Bush. And by the way, Emily, has, has that ever happened before where executive privilege has been called to keep documents out of a Supreme Court hearing? Not like not like this. this. Not um, I'm not talking about pending cases. We're talking about other, you know, other things that are on the record. That's never it, happened, right? No, yes. You're right. And that's exactly the right distinction. When Justice Elena Kagan was the nominee, you know, she had worked in the Obama administration as the solicitor general. And so the Obama folks did withhold documents that related to pending cases because they were still happening. But they did not assert executive privilege over the rest of Kagan's work um, in the Justice Department. And that's the difference we're seeing here. This is a long past administration um, and yet lots and lots of executive privilege. Right. Um, And I think what's going on here with these Kavanaugh documents, and I'm reading from for the first time along with you. This is literally breaking news right as we speak. Yeah, really. It's a discussion about the standard that it takes to win a racial discrimination case. Um, Trying to effectively, Kavanaugh is arguing for a higher standard that would make it um, harder for people to win under what's called a theory of um, disparate impact, which is where you can't show smoking gun evidence that there was intent to discriminate, but a law or a regulation is having the effect of discrimination. And Kavanaugh, it looks to me, is trying to just make it um, harder to win those kinds of cases. Okay. Listen, in your piece, you talk about uh, how things could unfold with the Supreme Court. And best case scenario, let's say, a majority conservative court might play it safe so that they would preserve the legitimacy of the courts by being seen as above politics. But... When you look at what hap- what's happened over the last few years, how do you think that this nuanced tactic might or might not be used? Is that is it a possibility? Can we hope for this? Yeah, it's possibility. I wouldn't myself bet on it, but it's certainly possible. And this is the line of thinking that, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts cares a great deal, as, as all of the justices do, about institutional legitimacy. And so in order to protect the court's reputation, he will not let it... Um, you know, kind of go too far too fast in a way that the country doesn't accept. Effectively, that nobody wants to a repeat of the Lochner Court. Mm -hmm. That is seen as a kind of discredited era, and that John Roberts doesn't want the court that's named after him, the Roberts Court, to be the next Lochner Court. And so somehow that will produce compromise and what we call judicial restraint, the idea of judges, of the justices doing um, smaller as opposed to more dramatic changes in the law. I mean, I think going along with that, Roberts would want to pr- make sure that the court, if it pushes to the right, I, I, his fear would be if it pushed too far to the right, it might make it lose its legitimacy, correct? Yes, exactly. That there are there's a step too far. It's not clear what it would be exactly. And I am not... Um, you know, I have no idea what Chief Justice Roberts is thinking about these things, but um, you could imagine that he does not want to set off a real revolt, like a dramatic clash between the will of the people and the Supreme Court. And Emily, do you think if the court goes even further to the right, that it might be focused on issues like gerrymandering and voting rights, which are uh, pretty impactful on, on the shape of things? Yes, 
I mean, this is the sort of third uh, possibility I was laying out in this essay and one that I think is quite plausible, that rather than like a huge clash, like back to the New Deal clash with FDR, what we have instead are kind of incremental steps that erode the democratic process and just make it harder to vote. Um, In general, Republican candidates tend to benefit when fewer people vote. Now, if I were a Republican, I mean to interrupt, and I heard that, I would think, gee, I don't really like that distinction, you know, but it works for them. Right, right. So, um, yes, I think the... um, the question is, can the court do a number of things that don't um, immediately trigger, you know, like people in the streets, just absolute fury and rage and rejection, but it can it, it make a lot of incremental step-like changes that just make it harder for the democracy to function in a way that entrenches the Republican Party, which, after all, is the party that put these five conservative justices in place, the people who will be holding the reins, in effect. Right. And is the worry if people lose faith in the court system, that'll impact how they vote? I mean, is, I guess, voting for more liberal representatives or, or voting whatever one's conscience is is going to be the, the solution to that worry? Right. Well, the electorate and elections are always the solution. I mean, that's like, right, the very basic to the democracy. But if you make it hard to exercise the franchise and you make people lose confidence in their ability to have a say in government, you know, that can be really um, bad for a country when you start looking at some countries that have lately sort of started to slide into soft autocracy, like Hungary, for example, or Turkey, you see people really lose faith in in the idea that their vote counts. Um, And we already have pretty low voter participation and turnout in this country. So if it went still lower because people felt thwarted, they thought that, you know, things like voter ID or getting kicked off the voter rolls were just making it too hard to vote, that would not be good for our democracy. Holy cow. Oh, gosh. Thanks so much for joining me, Emily. I mean, I'm (laughs) a little depressed, but I appreciate you saying that. And maybe people who are within the sounds of our voices will realize the answer is not to be depressed and feel like you're not being heard, but to make sure that you show up in numbers and your voices are heard through your vote. That's a good way to think about it. I like that ending. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Nancy Giles. I've been speaking with New York Times staff writer Emily Bazelon about her latest piece in the New York Times magazine, The GOP Plan to Rule the Courts. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, visit wnyc.org slash election.